This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alex Hughes, staff writer at BBC Science Focus magazine. We humans depend on the Earth's natural resources for our very existence, so it's vital that we take as good care of them as we can. However, it's abundantly clear that the environment isn't in great shape at the moment. In this special six-part series we explore the different factors affecting the sustainability of our natural resources, investigate what their current state is, and discuss what we could be doing to take better care of them. This week, we're talking about smart materials and how they can change the world we live in. I'm joined by Anna Porshaisky to discuss this topic. She's a material scientist and writer. She explains how smart materials work, what they can be used for, and how they have the ability to change everything from fashion to architecture. So I think the term smart materials is hugely expansive. It seems to just cover so many different things. Could you just explain what they actually are? Smart materials are a kind of family of materials that all have one thing in common, which is that they have a property, which might be their shape or their colour, And that property can change in response to changes that happen in that material's environment. For example, changes in temperature or light levels or magnetic fields or moisture levels, that kind of thing. And they sort of fall into these six different categories. So that would be colour changing, sensing, moving, heating and cooling, self-healing and phase changing, which is sort of freezing and melting. So as you said, a very, very broad range of abilities of these materials. 
And could you give some examples of some of these uh, items that might fit within these different categories? Yeah, I mean, there's everyday examples that people will see. For example, photochromic sunglasses, you know, those eyeglasses that are transparent and colourless indoors. And then when you step outside into bright sunlight, they change colour and go darker to turn into sunglasses. Those are sort of very commonly available. Other examples, things like if anyone's ever had a stent put in their artery, right? That's sort of expandable medical device to help arteries stay open. Those are sometimes made from what are called shape memory alloys, which are metals that can respond to a change in temperature in order to change shape. So you kind of put them in via keyhole surgery and then you inflate them once they're inside the body. And I assume with this kind of technology, for the most part, it's more used in, I guess, context of businesses, infrastructure, that sort of thing, and less so in the uh, consumer world. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Although there are more and more, there's more and more interest in incorporating smart materials into the consumer side as well. I've seen um, a few companies like um, Nike and a lot of the sportswear companies that seem to be jumping in on it a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of those relatively, I don't know, potentially high-end designers who are looking at temperature and moisture responsive clothing that will regulate or help you to regulate your own body temperature in response to your body temperature by becoming more or less insulating. Those sorts of applications I think are really, really cool. And how long would you say that uh, smart materials have been around? Is this just something that's, you know, the dawn of time and it's just sort of like used in different ways and we've just advanced our understanding of it as time's gone on? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. You know, there are lots of what we would define as a smart material in nature. The humble pine cone is probably my favourite example of that. You know, pine cones have a shape where they've got lots of little spines sort of on the outside and those spines, they're able to move and kind of wrap themselves around the pine cone or open out to become a more open structure in response to moisture levels in the environment. And um, they sort of, in, in that way, they kind of, if you speed up the image of that, they kind of look like they're breathing almost as they dry out and then get wet again. So lots of examples in nature that we would define as smart materials, but in terms of human-made materials, the oldest material that I think we would probably define as being smart um, is the lime mortar that was used to build the pyramids of Giza, you know, four and a half thousand years ago. That lime mortar is actually self-healing. So it has substances in there that when they react, when a crack forms and the substances react with the air, they form these little crystals which knit together and reform to heal that crack. But in terms of how we recognise smart materials, I'd say probably it was Pierre and Jacques Curie of Marie Curie's relatives, <laughs> who they were the ones that discovered the effect of piezoelectricity, which is shape changing in response to electric field. And that was in 1880. So the family of smart materials been around for a long time, but we've really been thinking of them as such for, I guess, 150 years or so. I really didn't think you were going to pull out the 4,000 year mark on me there. <laughs> I, I think something that's really interesting there is you were talking about the, the pine cone and its forms in the, I guess, the natural world. Is that where, I guess, some of our inspiration for these things has come from, seeing what happens in the natural world and learning from that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the field, what you're describing, sometimes called biomimicry, 
bio being nature and mimic, you know, to copy. Um, really, really hot topic in material science and engineering at the moment, which makes sense, right? Because, you know, we're, we're often looking to sustainable material systems as a way of being more sustainable ourselves. And of course, nature is the ultimate sustainable system. It's got a completely circular economy, if you like, all designed to be broken down and made into new things. And smart materials are no different. And so absolutely, the field of biomimicry is is massively influential in terms of not only developing new smart materials, but also developing new designs to use them in. And what are the challenges once you actually start developing and using these smart materials is there any problems once you're trying to actually put them out into the world or even when you're just trying to put them together i think the biggest challenge the materials themselves although they are smart are relatively simple and their function is relatively simple you know you can quite quickly define how much moisture do you need in this piece of material to make it swell by x amount you know that's a sort of relatively simple engineering relationship the difficulty and the challenge is actually once you've got this material that can sort of flip-flop between these two different states, how do you design with that? How do you build useful devices or structures that will use that amazing property to its best effect? So particularly in my experience as a researcher in this area, the materials themselves were relatively easy to come up with and characterize but it was the design and the collaboration with designers that I found the most challenging. And I assume there's also this question of blending those two worlds of where you have this smart material and you have this amazing property but then you've got to find a way to use it in such a way that is both aesthetically pleasing but also productive in its use. Yeah absolutely and that's I suppose where big teams of designers, architects in the built environment, clothing designers, you know, all sorts of people that work in areas that use materials. We as material scientists have to collaborate very closely with them if we want to see our stuff get out of the lab and be applied out there in the real world. And when we're talking about smart materials, how do you see, I guess, their impact on society in the future as this kind of thing becomes more widespread, more used, more integrated in the world that we live in? I think as with any new technology, probably the costs will start quite high. So initially, we may only be able to buy this stuff. You know, it will only be available to the more wealthy in society who will initially get those benefits. But that being said, there are some smart materials, for example, those that are self-healing, like I've mentioned, or those that are able to prevent corrosion and rusting from happening that could really see, I'm thinking particularly of spending and local councils who have to you know, deal with potholes in the roads and damage to bridges and buildings from corrosion. Those sorts of things, if we're able to make those areas smart, that could actually see a huge amount of money being saved that we're not having to maintain infrastructure so much. So potentially that money could be diverted into other services, et cetera, which could you know, greatly impact all in society. And I think thinking further afield as well, on a global scale, sometimes the biggest impacts with these sorts of new technologies could be seen in the developing world, particularly where the impacts of, for example, climate change might be felt strongest. Smart materials that are able to automate temperature regulation in buildings, for example, could massively benefit people in those areas. I mean, you won me over at fixing potholes, if I'm honest. That was, <laughs> that was all I needed. Um, 
You mentioned just there about countries where, you know, there's questions around the increase in heat or I guess changes in temperature, how you're trying to live down the line. Could you go into a little bit more detail about how we could use smart materials to address some of those issues, you know, climate change, energy, sustainability, that kind of thing? There are so many areas that smart materials could really, really help with this. One of my favorites is such a simple idea, which is color changing roof tiles, which they respond to temperature. So when the roof tile is very warm, when the sun is beating down on it, and generally in those circumstances, we inside the building want to remain cool. In that instance, the roof tiles turn a light color and light colors reflect more of the sun's heat energy away from the building. So to keep the inside of it cool. Conversely, when those tiles get colder again, they change color to become darker, which is more absorbing, which can then transmit some of that heat into the building. So just by changing color in response to temperature outside, those tiles are able to better regulate the inside temperature of the building without having to put the heating on and without having to put the air conditioning on as well. So a really nice example of it happening completely automatically. We don't have to do anything inside the building for that regulation to happen. And there's similar materials that you can put inside buildings, which are called phase changing materials that do something similar, except they melt and freeze and give out or take in heat through that process. So again, they sort of help to regulate temperature without us having to lift a finger or put energy into it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think for a lot of the things that come under smart materials, there's maybe this assumption that they're these incredibly complicated things, you know, borderline James Bond gadget kind of things of it's intricate, it's hard, it's complex. But hearing you talk about it, a lot of this stuff is actually very simple in its nature. I think it can be, yeah. You know, if you look at the example of the pine cone spine, that's just two layers of wood that have different expanding properties when they get wet. So when the spine itself gets wet, one side expands more than the other. And so it causes that motion. That's such a simple and elegant design. It's made of the same material even. So that's a kind of perfect example of what we should be trying to mimic in our materials and our designs. And it's absolutely possible to do that in lots of circumstances. 
when we're talking about these small materials and we're saying it in terms of um, helping one house or making a jump of someone or, or something like this, that we're talking on quite a small scale. But what happens when you start to move out to a larger scale when you're talking about the huge building projects or making a clothing line for thousands of people? Does it get harder to produce these kind of things when you have to start looking at getting it done by a robot machine or in uh, sort of more complicated factory lines? Definitely. Although I don't think that problem is unique to smart materials. You know, we're talking about such, as we've said, a wide family of materials. It's a little bit hard to generalize, but I think they would experience the same challenges of scaling up as all sorts of other industries as well. And I think something that I think is quite interesting within this field, um, specifically about, say, um, the use of smart materials in clothing, is that you know, most people have huge wardrobe of clothes to fit, you know, all of the different situations here in England, you need, you know, a, a coat for six different seasons. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if, you know, there's this idea of smart materials being able to help, you know, adjust to different seasons, to different weathers, to different ideas with less clothes that you have one thing that can account for multiple different situations. Yeah, I absolutely love that idea, you know, one jacket for any temperature or season. I, I think that's, there's two sides to it, isn't there? You know, having fewer possessions means obviously less waste and less um, consumption. But if those possessions are much more complex than, let's say, a simple cotton jacket, there's an argument to be made about the more complexity we put into objects, the harder they are actually to not only put together, but also deal with at the end of their life as well, to separate all of those smart materials out at the end of the life of that object. So it's a, it's a complicated one. It's funny because I was going to follow that up by asking you about the concept of recycling and upcycling the smart materials and how that works with I guess, I mean, clothing is the perfect example of that, of like what happens when you're done with your coat that is more complex and put together in a different kind of way to the average material. Yeah, and I think that is a real key issue because these smart materials, they're not really that useful on their own. They only become useful when you combine them with other materials that aren't smart materials. And so I think inherently these smart clothes or smart objects will have to be made up of more different material components and be much more complex in their design. So to recycle that, we would need to separate out all of those individual material components again in order to be able to put that back into the material cycle, which it's not impossible, but it needs to be something that is thought about at the design stage rather than you know letting people deal with it later down the line. And often with the discussion of materials impact on um uh, on the environment we look to the end result you know the consumer and how they're going to recycle it but is there ways that we can look at i guess the production and the actual use of it in more of an environmental way and how we're making it at the start of the process that is more eco-friendly in that sense yeah absolutely i think that point of thinking about that full life cycle of the product from you know sourcing the raw materials all the way to what happens at the end of life that needs to become much more of a sort of common design 
process, the thought process of we're going to make this thing, but how are we going to make sure that we can make it sustainably at every single stage of its lifetime? That's a shift that I do think is occurring much, much more. You know, there's the right to repair movement, which has gained massive traction in lots of places all over the world. Us trying to repair our stuff to keep it in our possession much, much longer. And manufacturers are also getting on board with this as well, because they're recognizing that consumers are pushing for more sustainable and repairable products and they will put their money where those sustainable credentials are. So it's absolutely a shift that's happening. I think it's really exciting actually to see that. We're talking mostly about in terms of the clothing, using smart materials in a way that is, I guess, practical. It's good for temperature regulation um, and all these sort of things. But there's also... I guess a lot of companies that are trying to reduce their carbon footprint by really thinking about the materials they're using in their clothes, what is more sustainable in that sense? Is that also somewhere we can be thinking about smart materials in the sense of how can you be getting less carbon intensive materials into your products? One thing though that I think is a bit tricky for consumers is to actually understand which materials are better or worse for the environment in terms of their carbon intensity, carbon footprint, uh, you know, water usage, use of toxic dyes. You know, there's so many factors around sustainability that we as consumers are quite often not privy to. It can be really hard to make those choices. So the more designers and manufacturers are able to be transparent and and, you know, honest about the materials that are going in there, the more I think consumers will be empowered to be able to make those choices. And I do think that smart materials will see a place in a more sustainable array of materials that we might have the choice of choosing in the future. It definitely does go along with that, um, you know, the idea of the right to repair where people are given more choice and more ability in their um, purchasing decisions on the things that they're using so frequently. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, self-healing textiles, we haven't mentioned yet, but um, they are, you know, the ultimate (laughs) repairable textile. So we wouldn't even need the right to repair if our stuff would repair itself. (laughs) I mean, that is a a perfect thing to go on to is the idea of these um, self-healing clothes, because I think especially for, I guess, the more durable clothes, people that are trying to, you know, the more outdoorsy people that are beating their clothes up a lot more, the self-healing clothes is kind of the perfect thing for them. Yeah, absolutely. I bought a, I'm I'm on a quest in my life to find my forever raincoat and I haven't found it yet. I thought I'd found it at Easter and I went on a walk in the Lake District and I ripped the pocket of it (laughs) and my first wear and I was so distraught and had it been, you know, a self-healing textile that, that wouldn't have been such an issue. So yeah, I think it's an interesting tension, isn't it? Because, you know, previously, previous generations would have been much more literate in the skills of repair for textiles, for household objects, you know, cars, everything. I feel like we've lost a lot of that knowledge. And so maybe it's not so surprising that we are starting to invent materials that can automate things like repair for us, because many of us are increasingly automating lots of other areas of our life. It's a shame, though, if those skills, I think, are lost because our materials make us too complacent about being able to repair stuff as well. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point, really. If uh, we become too reliant on smart materials, is that a problem where we forget these skills? I mean, that's already 
I guess, something that's happening in other parts of um, our world. You know, people are experiencing similar things with AI. And, you know, there's very much me who's now thinking about the idea of, can I use AI to find my forever coat? You know, I think it's very easy to (laughs) push these uh, tasks out once there's a replacement for it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very interesting one, isn't it? And we can't guarantee in the future that those technologies will always be available to us, right? And so what happens then when we are suddenly left without those important skills because we've been reliant on the technology too much? We've um, spoken a lot about the, I guess, the clothing side of things, but one other area I want to touch on is in infrastructure because I'm curious what happens when you start to use smart materials in critical infrastructure and you start to implement implement them into, you know, these big buildings, roads, cities, where there's a lot of linking parts that need to work together to, you know, a high standard for the safety of people where it is something very serious. Is there any risks there once you start using smart materials in that kind of world? Oh, that's an interesting question. I suppose any new technology is going to carry some uncertainties about its longevity, for example. You know, we can do tests in the lab about how long something's going to last and over what stresses and strains it can tolerate. But if you put something in a building that you hope is going to last for 50 years, you can't do that test in a lab. You know, you just have to put it there and hope for the best. So I suppose there probably might be some teething problems in terms of how many cycles these materials can go through before their effects start to wear off maybe over time. What do we do about that? Maybe they'll need greater maintenance than their sort of non-smart material equivalent. Some of them can be just inherently kind of unstable or very delicate in their chemical makeup. So those sorts of details really of the materials would definitely have to be characterized before we put them in something as important as, you know, a building or a bridge um, so that we know as much as we can that we can predict how those materials are going to last in the long run. So we've, uh, you know, spoken about lots of different smart materials in different situations and kind of talked about what is the future, the current, the past. I'm just kind of curious what you see the future of smart materials to be. What what is the like our interaction going forward with it? Do you see it to be something that appears in a few niche areas? Do you see it as being quite a commonplace material in everything or nothing at all? I think I definitely do see smart materials becoming more of an everyday thing in our lives. I think our current need to try to sort of automate and make our lives easier right is is a trend that i can't see going away anytime soon and so the attraction of smart materials i think is definitely there in that i think it's interesting what that says about us as a society and as humanity i always like to think about what our materials say about us you know in a few hundred years time when our forever jacket is sitting in a museum <laughs> and it's been self-healing for, for hundreds of years. You know, what will that say about us as a society? Hopefully it will show that we are, you know, creative and good at making things thoughtful about our materials and our environment. Um, and I do think that the smart materials will have a place in our future for sure. We just have to make sure that we're being mindful about not overcomplicating 
objects unnecessarily and making sure that we're being responsible for the full life cycle of our stuff. I think what it will show is that we finally plan off for our overcoats. That's what matters. <laughs> Here's hoping. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Anna Proshaisky talking about smart materials. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come and find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.